Chapter Eight, Part One of Shores of the Polar Sea: A Narrative of the Arctic Expedition of 1875-76. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shores of the Polar Sea by Edward Lawton Moss, Chapter Eight, Part One. The failure to communicate with His Majesty's ship Discovery in the autumn had, to some extent, disarranged our plans. Communication was absolutely necessary to ensure cooperation, and the sooner it was effected the better, for our consort had as much sledging work to get through as she could possibly complete in the season. Robeson Channel had to be crossed, and the rugged northern shore of Greenland explored, in search of land poleward. Petermann's fjord had not yet been traversed, and Lady Franklin Sound might possibly open northwards and afford a favorable route for the Discovery's sledge crews to penetrate as far as the shore of the Polar Sea. The short traveling season in the far north is limited on the one hand by the lingering cold of winter, and on the other by the summer thaw of the surface snow and the renewed motion of the ice. As soon, therefore, as travelling was at all possible, a dog-sledge was got ready to carry dispatches to our sister-ship. Two energetic young officers, and Neil Peterson the Dane, were detailed for this duty. On the morning of 12th of March, every one in the ship gathered on the floes to see them off. Their team of nine dogs carried the Clements Markham down the smooth ice of our exercise mile at a gallop, and in a few minutes the red and white sledge pennant, with its crossed arrows, was lost to sight amongst the hummocks of Cape Rawson. Three days passed in preparing the ship for spring, and the low temperature and strong wind made us think anxiously of our absent messmates, but we never for a moment supposed that they would suffer anything more than the recognized hardships of sledging in bad weather. On the evening of the third day, our heavy winter awning had just been taken down from over the deck, and the men were coming inboard after their day's work, when someone caught sight of the dog-sledge coming back to the ship. There were but two men running alongside, and they came on silently, without the usual joyful signaling that marks a returning party. Poor Peterson lay on the sledge, marvelously changed in three days, mottled with frostbite and apparently dying. His companions had succeeded in carrying him back to the ship, only just in time. They themselves were much fatigued, and their fingers raw with frostbites, incurred in attempts to restore Peterson's frozen limbs. When they had slept, as only tired men can, we heard their story. They had not been a day away when Peterson found he had greatly overrated his strength, and became unable to assist in the heavy work of guiding the sledge along the steep incline under the cliffs, lowering the dogs and sledge down precipitous places, and hauling them up again. Next day he was badly frostbitten, for a cramped and enfeebled man cannot long resist strong wind and a temperature of minus thirty-four degrees. It was impossible either to proceed or retreat 
without risking his life, and the breeze freshened, so that they could not pitch the tent. The only course left was to dig a pit in the snow, which was, fortunately, somewhat hardened by the wind. So they at once set about shoveling out a hole, and when it was six feet deep, they excavated it below till they got a space eight feet square. It took six hours' hard labor before they were able to move Peterson, wrapped up in the tent and tent robes, into it, and cover the top closely in with the sledge and drifting snow. But once well covered in, and the sledge lamp lit, they had the satisfaction of seeing the temperature rise to seven degrees above zero. But Peterson could not be warmed. They made tea for him. He could not take it. Pemmican disagreed with him, and a little soup was made from the Australian meat carried for the dogs. By turns, they chafed his limbs for hours at a time, and sawed his frozen feet under their own clothes, Eskimo fashion, then swathed feet and hands in their flannel wrappers, and lay close on either side, trying to warm him. But in a very short time, although he said his feet were warm and comfortable, they were found frozen so hard that the toes could not be bent, and the whole process had to be gone through again. For a day and a night they struggled in this way against the fatal cold, and then, fortunately for them, the wind lessened, and leaving provisions and fuel, dog's food, and all that could be dispensed with, behind, they took the only course open to them, and struck out for the ship. The only possible road was the one they had come, and it was rugged in the extreme. On the left rose high cliffs banked with treacherous snow, and on the right rounded and broken ice piled in towers and pinnacles upon the shore. In some places, round headlands, it was utterly impossible to get the sledge safely past, with the men and tent robes lashed on it, and one had to help him round as best he could, while the other held in the eager dogs and tried to guide the sledge. The poor brutes were so anxious to get back to the ship that constant halts were necessary to disentangle the harness, no easy task with frostbitten fingers. The last headland was the worst. In spite of every effort, the sledge slipped sideways, then upset, and rolled down into a deep ditch, turning over three times as it went, and dragging the dogs after it. When it was at length got out, a comparatively smooth road lay before them, and they drew up alongside the ship, most thankful that their comrade was still able to recognize the friends that crowded round him. For days the poor fellow lay in a very uncertain state. Severe amputations were unavoidable, but he rallied wonderfully for a time and when the main detachments of sledges left the ship, we bade him a hopeful good-bye. Five days passed before the weather became calm enough for a second attempt southward, but on the twentieth the dog-sledge again started for the discovery. The settled weather that favoured our travellers this time enabled us to take active measures to prepare our sledge-crews for their coming work. Each day a pair of crews left the ship for practice with their sledges, and thus a store of pemmican, bacon, etc., was deposited at Black Cape to help forward 
the Greenland division of sledges from the Discovery. Before breakfast on 1st of April, a man came down with a report that a large white animal had just been seen a quarter of a mile from the ship. This seemed a very extraordinary piece of news, for our walking parties had scoured the whole country, sometimes as much as thirteen hours away from the ship, without finding even a track of game, and had as yet brought nothing on board except one small white feather from the breast of a ptarmigan or snowy owl. The general opinion at first sight was that the date added a peculiar significance to the story, but at any rate it was advisable to lose no time in seeing whether the mysterious animal was sufficiently materialized to leave any tracks. Accordingly, two of us took our rifles, and sure enough, we found a large wolf track at the spot indicated. For hours we patiently followed the marks. They took us a long circuit shoreward. There appeared to be three animals, but we could not be certain, for the track often doubled on itself. All at once an unpleasant suspicion flashed across us. Could it be that anything had happened to our travellers, and that we were following their dogs in mistake for wolves? The trucks were very large, measuring as much as six inches long by four and a half wide, and the centre nails were long and turned outwards. While we debated, our suspicions were set at rest by a loud howl, not as prolonged as a black Canadian wolf's, but wolfish certainly, for there was no mistaking the fierce misery of the note. He had caught sight of us, and as usual with his species, given a view halloo. Presently we saw him, three hundred yards off, a gaunt, yellowish-white beast, cantering along at a swift, slouching gait. When we stopped, he stopped. We lay down, and one of us rolled off on the snow out of sight, and made a long detour in hope of surprising him. But he seemed to know the range of our rifles to a nicety, and at length we saw him canter off southwards, unharmed by the long shots we sent after him. As we walked back, we could not but wonder what had induced wolves to come north into a desert where for miles and miles there was not so much as a stone above the snow. The mystery was soon explained. Tracks of four hunted musk oxen were found a couple of miles off. No doubt the wolves had driven them from some southern feeding ground. They travelled so rapidly that our hunting party dispatched after them failed even to catch sight of them. The discovery that there was some game in the country was a very cheering one. If it was not a land flowing with milk and honey, it was at any rate not so bad as it might be. And we went back to our sledging preparations with a hope that we should fall in with either the wolves or the oxen during our travels. The weather was now sufficiently settled to warrant a departure of the main travelling parties. It was arranged that they should consist of two separate divisions of eight men sledges. Lieutenant Aldrich, with the sledge challenger, would explore the shore to the northwest in search of land, trending northward. He would be supported by Lieutenant Gifford's sledge, the Poppy, which would travel with the challenger to a distant point, 
reprovisioned her there, return to Floberg Beach, and then carry out depots of food and fuel for the challenger's homeward journey. The Northern Division, under the command of Captain Markham, would consist of his sledge, the Marco Polo, and Lieutenant Pars, the Victoria, supported by the Alexandra, commanded by Mr. White, and the writer's own sledge, the Bulldog. In addition to these, a four-man sledge led by Bryant, a petty officer of His Majesty's ship Discovery, would help us forward for three or four days. The routes of both detachments lay together as far as Cape Joseph Henry. At that point, the northern parties would replenish their stores from the supporting sledges, and from the large depot of pemmican placed there in the autumn. Then, leaving the land, endeavor to force a passage due northward over the flows. Meantime, a depot for the return would be carried out by the bulldog, and left at some suitable spot at Cape Joseph Henry. Owing to the impossibility of depositing autumn or, indeed, any other depots, sledge-traveling away from the coast, has never yet been carried to any distance. We looked upon this attempt in the light of a more than doubtful experiment. It nevertheless promised a higher northern latitude than the coastline route. When we compared notes amongst ourselves, after we had started, one or two thought that north latitude 86 degrees might be attainable, but the majority drew the line at 85 degrees. On the morning of 3rd of April, all hands mustered for the last time on the floes beside the ship. The final preparations were complete, and our seven heavily laden sledges lay ranged in a line, with their knotted drag ropes stretched on the snow. When every point in their dress and outfit had been carefully inspected, the men closed together and joined heartily in the short service read by the chaplain. All felt the serious nature of the work they were about to undertake, but nevertheless looked forward to it eagerly. Then the order was given, and the sledge crews took their places, fifty-three men and officers in all. A little group of twelve only remained by the ship, every one of them regretting that it was not their duty to share hard work and exposure with their messmates. With three cheers the men took leave of their comrades, and of the gallant little ship that had so well sheltered them, and the whole detachment moved forwards. The last to leave us was the captain. He walked on a little while with each sledge, giving us a few words of advice and encouragement, before he bade us Godspeed. End of chapter 8, part 1